All right, if you have your Bibles, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if you don't know where that is, um, think of your New Testament this way. You have the Gospels, you have the book of Acts, and then you get into Paul's letters, and they start from the longest to the shortest. And Thessalonians is one of the shortest letters, and so it's towards the end of his letters, and it's right before Timothy. We're going to start reading from chapter 1, verse 1, and most of the verses that we're going to deal with today come from the epistle itself. Um, So anyway, I am preaching from the King James because the King James is so much easier to preach from than some of the other modern translations because the language is so good in it. So anyway, let's start with verse 1. It starts off, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timotheus, or Timothy, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to center on verses 2 and 3, especially on 3. We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. Now let's drill down into three. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Notice the triad there. You have work of faith, labor of love, and patience or steadfastness of hope. Now, notice, too, that Paul actually brings this triad before God's throne, before God in prayer, and mentions these things before God on behalf of the Thessalonians. You have faith, love, and hope. Now, I don't want you to turn to these verses, but let me read some other verses to you to show you how these three virtues are structured in the gospel. First of all is 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Everybody knows this verse. And now abides faith, hope, and charity, or love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. What most people don't know is that it's also cited in Galatians, this triad. Listen to what Paul writes. For we through the Spirit... Wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Amen. So you have faith, love, and hope in those two verses in Galatians. And then finally, you go back to 1 Thessalonians, but chapter 5. And Paul writes this, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Notice this triad in all these verses. These virtues are the natural consequence of the gospel of God. God is a God of faith, He's a God of love, and He's a God of hope, and He creates a people who 
embody these same values. This, these virtues describe the body of Christ as powered or infused or animated by the Spirit. And that's what we're going to take a look at in this message. Now, before we dive into this triad, each, each prong of the triad, let me give you a little bit of background about Thess- Thessalonians. <clears throat> the city of Thessalonica, when Paul and Silas and Timothy visited it, was the capital of Macedonia, a region <clears throat> in Upper Greece. Thessalon- Thessalonica was a port city, which in my mind, because I live in Texas, is, was kind of like Galveston because it seems to be like it was a blue-collar city. Not, uh, not a Miami, not a New York, not an L.A., but something like a Galveston or a Beaumont or something like that, something along the Gulf. Because Paul says that he worked alongside the Thessalonians day and night during his ministry there. And that gives you the idea that they were blue-collar workers. Now... Paul had a vision that directed him to go over to Thessalonica. Let me read to you uh, the vision in the book of Acts. Acts 16.9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia assuredly gathering or concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel unto them. Now, in Paul's letters, there are two letters in cities to cities or churches in the region of Macedonia, and that's uh, Philippians and Thessalonians. Now, Paul went to Philippi first, and When he went to Philippi, he and Silas preached the gospel. They were beaten and imprisoned, thrown into the inner jail. God delivered them out of the jail, and then they left the city and then made their way over to uh, Thessalonia. So let me read Acts 17 to give you some more background about Paul's entrance into Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through in Phipolis and Apollyon, now Apollina, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preached to you is Christ. So you get, you get the scene here from, uh, from Luke in the book of Acts, that Paul arrives in the city, and immediately he goes to the synagogue and starts preaching that Israel's Messiah was Jesus. And Jesus suffered and was crucified and raised from the dead. Now, in verse 4, it says, And some of them believed. So he had a small coterie of Jews in the synagogue that believed the gospel. 
And it says, and consorted with Paul and Silas. Now, here's where it gets a little bit interesting. It says, and the devout Greeks, a great multitude. Now, the background of Thessalonians is this. Paul would go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. So there, have, there you have three Sabbaths. But during the week, <clears throat> he plied his trade to support himself and his fellow preachers or his fellow gospel workers. And like I said, he, uh, the trade was blue collar. So from the context, what we gather is that Paul from Sunday to Friday... Friday evening, <clears throat> he would work, he would work among the Gentiles, among the Greeks, and during that time he shared the gospel with them. And Luke writes that a great multitude came to the gospel through this type of gospel preaching, actually. And then Luke says, and of the chief women, not a few. Now here's where it gets interesting, and it provides the backdrop to Paul's letters. But the Jews which believed not, which was the majority, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, of course they did, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Now we'll get into the fact that the city was brought up into an uproar. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come here also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city, when they heard these things, and when they had taken security or bail of Jason and in the other, they let them go. Now, <clears throat> verse 10 says, And the brethren, or the brothers, immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming there went into the synagogue of the Jews. So that sets out the background, really, for Paul's letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. You have believing Jews set in the city, causing an uproar, um, stirring up what some, uh, one translation says, some ruffians. Uh, and there's immediate persecution. What they also say is that these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, another Lord, one Jesus. That's where the Jews are trying to bring Rome to clamp down on the gospel preaching. Now, getting into it, let's first establish that Paul was a spirit-filled preacher. Let me read verse 4 to you. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only. Which is funny because a lot of times that's what gospel preaching is today. It's in word only. But he says, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And in much assurance or full conviction. Now, when you go back to Paul's history, his personal history, you know that he gets born again on the road to Damascus. He calls Jesus Lord on the road to Damascus. 
And Jesus tells him, you go into the city and you'll be told what to do. While he's there in the city of Damascus, he's waiting and praying. And a disciple named Ananias comes and lays his hands on him and says, Receive Paul the Holy Spirit. And the King James is, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. That's one reason why the King James is kind of easy to preach. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, we know from Paul's other letters, like say to the Corinthians, that he spoke in tongues. He was baptized in the Spirit. So you keep in mind, when he writes these letters, he is a Spirit-filled preacher. And that becomes important in writing these letters and describing the believers because he is preaching a Spirit-filled gospel and winning over Spirit-filled believers. It's real important. It's important for the context of understanding why he's writing what he's writing. Now, when he preached the gospel in Thessalonica, he says this about it. He says, For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, not as opinion, not as some kind of commentary, not as some kind of, you know, hey, that was a nice sermon today. No, you received it as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually works also in you that believe. Notice that last line in there. It's not mental assent. It's not some kind of intellectual transaction or intellectual exercise. He says, which effectually works also in you that believe. That's by the power of the Spirit. The church is empowered by the Spirit-filled Word. Amen. Now, let's go back to verse 3, and let's look at this triad. You have the work of faith, the labor of love, and patience or steadfast of hope. Now, Given modern-day preaching, you rarely see the word work and faith in the same sentence. In fact, a lot of preachers kind of treat those two as oxymoronic. You can't have a work of faith, but you see it right here in Scripture. What does it mean? Well, first of all, let's deal with the word faith. In Greek, it's the word pistis. Now, It's been rendered, basically, by modern preaching as intellectual assent or mental assent. But what it really means in the setting of this verse, and also in the setting of the gospel letters, uh, the epistles and the gospels, it's a type of believing allegiance. Now, let me show you how that plays out. You go over to Hebrews 11.1, and this is the famous verse, that defines what faith is. King James says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, if you put in the definition or the translation believing allegiance, you have now believing allegiance, it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and it's consistent with what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Because we serve an invisible God, we have a Savior we have not seen. There are spiritual truths, and believing allegiance is 
what? Allegiance to those truths. And what that allegiance does is that faith is the outworking of that inner allegiance. It is not the nodding of a head. It is not, uh, you know, checking off a box in church or anything. It is directing your life, your walk, your beliefs with this allegiance that you have with faith. Amen. And this is what we see in the letter to the Thessalonians. Now, let me show you, because Paul, Paul fleshes it out once you, once you read it in this context. In uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance or our welcome unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. That's where they were dragged into the public square, beaten and jailed. But he says this. He says, We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention or much opposition. The word bold there, in the Greek it means speaking in the midst of opposition. So what is Paul saying here? And this kind of describes a work of faith that he is doing that he is declaring the gospel in the middle of persecution and opposition. He says, we did it in Philippi, and actually, we did it with you. We preach the gospel. That's that believing allegiance. You know, if you think about it, Paul and Silas, after what happened to them in Philippi, they could have just thrown in the towel and said, you know what? We had a vision. We had a vision of a man from Macedonia, saying, come help us. And we came all the way over here, and we preached the gospel, and what did we get for it? We got beaten. We have scars to prove it. We got thrown in the inner prison. We were shamefully entreated. And so they could have said, well, you know what? I'm just going to cast this off. I'm going to go back home. And, you know, if, if the gospel is about writing letters, if the gospel is about just communicating and intellectual assent, then, you know, I can just write some letters from home and I'll just send it out to people. They didn't do that. It's a believing allegiance to the, to the gospel, to the things that are invisible. Amen. Now, what's interesting here is that the Thessalonians followed suit. In verse 6, Paul writes this, and you became followers. In the Greek, the word is imitators. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction or much opposition or much persecution with joy of the Holy Ghost. Now, isn't that interesting? That the Thessalonians, once Paul started preaching, from the very outset, there became opposition to what he was preaching. And the Thessalonians, a great multitude of them, believed in the midst of this persecution. They received the word as the very word of God in the middle of persecution. And when you step back and you think about that, you know, it's, it's really quite amazing. 
because Paul comes into town preaching about a Jew who was crucified by Rome, basically as a criminal, but God raised him from the dead, and he is Lord of all. And this was news to Greeks. This was news to those outside the commonwealth of Israel. And they received it as the very word of God. And it wasn't just like, oh, well, that's nice. That's great. They received it in the middle of persecution. That's part of the work of faith. That's part of the work of believing allegiance, believing the gospel in the midst of opposition. And notice this, Paul says, with joy of the Holy Ghost, because their believing allegiance was empowered, energized by the Spirit. Because you have a Spirit-filled preacher preaching a Spirit-filled gospel. Notice that Paul says this of them. He said, you know, you receive the Word of God, and you receive persecution from your own countrymen. The people that you live with, the people that you go to work for, the people you hang around, everybody in your life you're receiving persecution from, just like the Jews in Jerusalem did, or the Christian, the believing Jews in Judea did. They became imitators too. What? It's that believing allegiance. Now let's take a look at this affliction. Let's take a look at this persecution. As you read here, it came from their own countrymen or fellow Thessalonians. Now, the Thessalonians were idol worshipers. You see that in the chapter. One thing about Greek society was this. They had a whole lot of gods, but everybody got along. You had your gods. Your, your buddy down the street had his gods. The family down the street from there had their gods. And everybody got along because the gods were not exclusive. And so it ran in the social fabric of the whole city and the whole culture. People had weddings in their temples. They had their ceremonies in temples. They hung out together because they had this, uh, they shared the same, quote, aims and gods and worship and that type of thing. It's kind of like hanging out in country clubs and stuff like that, but it had to do with idol worship. And like I said, everybody got along. Now here comes the gospel, the spirit-powered gospel. And what happens well, the gospel is exclusive. This doesn't share his glory with anybody. The only way to salvation is through Christ. Well, what does that do? That creates an uproar with your friends and your family and your colleagues and maybe even your employment and even the government if the government doesn't like it. That's where the persecution comes from. And you can understand from the context that these Thessalonians, once they believed the gospel, it created all kinds of problems in the natural for them. You know, uh, one of the verses says that Jesus delivers us from the coming wrath. That is part of the hope. Now, if you talk about God's wrath, you're, you're going to catch the wrath of the friends and family who don't have the same beliefs that you do. They don't want to hear that kind of thing. They don't want to hear a gospel that you adhere to, but they don't. And the thing is, what we read in John is, men love the darkness. And so 
many men, many people who hear the gospel reject the gospel because they love darkness. And so they have the wrath coming. Now, that's on the natural side. And you know what's crazy about today is you have preaching where people say that persecution ultimately comes from God because he wants to test his people. Well, that's not true. That's not even found in the letter anywhere. It came from their own countrymen, and their own countrymen were idol worshipers. They were outside the covenant. Now, Paul even tells us another place that it comes from, or that it came from. If you turn over to chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, let me read this to you. Paul writes, For truthfully, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation or affliction, even as it came to pass, and you know this. Now notice verse 5. He says, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear. Now, let me, let me give you some background on this, because he jumps. He jumps from persecution when he was there to writing the letter afterwards. After Paul and Silas went down to Berea, they made their way in their journey down to Athens. And while Paul was in Athens, he thought back to Thessalonica. And he wanted to know how the believers were doing. How was their work of faith? How were they standing up to the persecution because Paul and Silas had left in the middle of persecution? So what he did is he sent Timothy to go spy them out. Go find out, Timothy, how they are doing how the work of faith, how their believing allegiance is doing today. And then Timothy comes back with a good report. Now, verse 5. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, or when I couldn't bear it anymore, I sent to know your faith. Lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Notice what he says here, the tempter tempted you, lest the tempter tempted you. He's not talking about God there. He's talking about the prince of the power of the air. He's talking about the spiritual energizing or animation of the countrymen. In Ephesians, Paul writes about to, to the Ephesian believers about the time before they were saved, before they were born again. And he said, at, at one time, you walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of unbelief or the sons of disobedience. And that's what Paul is referring to here. It is that personality that instigated persecution. Why? Well, there are two reasons. When you go to Thessalonians 2 and verses 14 and 15, you find one of them. For, for Paul writes this, For you, brothers, became followers of the churches of God. Well, we read that already. Verse 15. Oh, actually, it's verse 16. Hold on one second. In verses 14 and 15, he talks about 
you know, suffering like things from or of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, talking about the churches, churches in Judea. But then in verse 16, he says this, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. That's one reason for persecution, trying to shut down the preaching of the gospel so that men may be saved. Makes sense. And then you have the other reason for persecution, and that is 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 and 4. Actually, verse 3, Paul writes this, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. What's he saying there? He's saying that persecution comes to test that believing allegiance, to try to take away the faith of that believing allegiance of believers. People will say, I can't take this. I can't take family members turning their backs on me. I can't take losing our stuff, losing economic status, our social status. That kind of thing comes to try to take away the faith. And you see here that it's instigated by the one, the tempting one. Or another translation says, the seducing one. Those are the reasons for persecution. Those are the reasons for persecution. So Paul was happy to learn that they were fine in their allegiance, their believing allegiance. In fact, it was growing more and more. And that's one of the uh, prongs of the triad, one of the points or virtues of the triad that we're looking at. The second one is the labor of love. What is the labor of love? Well, in chapter 4, verse 9, Paul writes this to the Thessalonians. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Yeah, that's so cool. When you go back into the Greek, you see that there is a compound word of God taught. They are God taught ones to love one another. Now, Paul says, I don't need to write to you about that because it's evident that you're, you've been taught of God to do that. So he doesn't lay out what they're doing. But he does say that they are imitators of him and the Lord. And so one way to understand this God-taught love is to look back at Paul because they're imitators of Paul. And when you look at Paul, actually you... Uh, you're looking at a great man, and you're looking at a man who really is a wonder of the gospel. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, excelled past his peers, was persecuting the church, and then the Lord Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. He says that he counts everything in his past as loss. When you get into the Greek, the word is actually crap. But you look back at him at Philippi. There he's dragged into the marketplace 
for his preaching of the gospel, this former Pharisee, this former white-collar Pharisee who is up and coming, who had his future all laid out for him, who was the, what, adoration of all the other Pharisees and of the Jewish hierarchy. And here he is in a Roman colony town, being dragged around the public square and beaten and thrown into the inner jail for his preaching of Jesus. And then what? They're released. They're released, and, well, you can read about the account, but they make their way over to Thessalonica. And what does Paul do? He goes straight to the synagogue and starts preaching Jesus all over again. And he creates an uproar in the city that we just read. Where, what, the Thessalonian believers, these new believers, slip him and Silas out at night. And what does Paul do after that? Well, it says that he, they go into Berea and he goes straight to the synagogue again. That's an example of self-sacrificial love, self-giving love. That's the kind of love that is engendered by our gospel. And you see the backdrop of it with the Thessalonians. They receive the word of God, what? In the midst of persecution. And Paul says to them, you know, I don't even need to write about brotherly love to you because you're God-taught. What does he know about them? You know that they're, they are looking out for one another. You know that they have become a tight church, sacrificing one for another because Paul says, you become imitators of me. In fact, you have become imitators of the Lord. And what did the Lord do? Let's read it. It's always good to read it. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, Who being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Self-sacrificing love. That is the badge, that is the mark of the body of Christ. That is the mark of the gospel. And you see it here with believers who have been believers for, what, three Sabbaths, three weeks. Amen. That is the second prong of the triad. You have believing allegiance that leads to spirit-empowered Sacrificial love. Amen. And then the last one is the steadfastness of hope. In the first chapter, we read this. For they themselves report concerning us what a welcome we had among you. And listen. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. One mark of the Christian is the coming hope. 
It's the hope of Jesus returning. Now that sounds kind of basic, but actually it is, it is material and it marks what we do. It marks how we act. It marks what we believe. That he is going to return to the planet and he's going to set up his kingdom. That we're going to have resurrected bodies. And the thing is, non-believers don't have any hope like that at all. Non-believers have no hope. One thing that's striking about Paul's letter in uh, 1 Thessalonians is how many times he refers to Jesus' return. Let me cite another one to you. Uh, 3, verses 12 and 13. He writes, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love toward one another and to all men, even as we do towards you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. Amen. Let me read another one. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That is a comfort because unbelievers don't have any hope. Even though you have a bunch of Greeks worshiping idols, they don't have any hope. They don't have any God coming back. They don't have any resurrected Savior coming back for them. Only Christians have that hope. Now, what I want to show you is the contrast. And Paul brings that out in chapter 4. He says this. And let me give you a little bit of the context. We know that there was persecution immediately with the believers in Thessalonica. From the context of Paul's letter, it may be that some of them were killed. Because when you think about it, when Paul and Silas came into the city, they didn't have any believers. They were preaching the gospel for the first time. But then in chapter 4, Paul talks about those who have died in Christ. Well, who in the world died in Christ except those who were murdered or killed in persecution? But he explains what happens with those who have died in Christ. Listen. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Notice the demarcation. Notice the contrast, the difference. He says this, he says, concerning those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So while a Christian might grieve because a loved one has died, especially in persecution, the Christian carries the hope that he or she will see him or her again when Jesus comes back to the planet. The unbeliever doesn't have any such hope. 
And so the unbeliever's grief is totally different. And Paul says, don't grieve like that. No, you're going to see these people again. But the unbelievers, they don't have any such hope. That does not anchor them. That does not anchor their conduct or what they do. Amen. In fact, Paul described them this way in Ephesians 2. He said, uh, speaking to believers about the time before they were born again, he says this, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Listen, having no hope and with God, without God in the world. Having no hope. So that's one of the virtues. That's one of the embodiments that the body of Christ has. Do what you want. Do what you want to try to do to me. But the thing is, I have a hope. My Savior is coming back. My Lord is coming back. He delivers me from the wrath of God. Not you, but me. So we see when Paul was praying and bringing the Thessalonians before God in prayer, and he says, he says constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your work of believing allegiance. And really, believing allegiance, when you go through uh, the epistles and the gospels, you plug that in, for the word faith, and you'll see that it's just another way of saying faithfulness because that's the mark of the body of Christ, faithfulness, those who are animated by the Spirit. And then what? Labor of love, self-sacrificing love, one for another. Amen. And then what? The steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming back. He might... You know, he might not come back tomorrow. He might not come back next week. But we are marked by the fact that he is coming back and we carry that hope within us. It marks us. And it marks us against those who are walking in darkness who have no hope. Amen. So that is the Thessalonian triad. And what you'll see in all the other epistles that these virtues anchor the body of Christ. The, the body of Christ embodies these virtues. Amen. Because God himself does. Hallelujah. So let me close out with a, uh, a benediction, actually from 1 Thessalonians. And may the, the, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calls you who will also do it. He will do it by the Spirit. Amen. Amen.